0: We're back. Oh, we're back. We're here. We are here. Ladies and gentlemen, the Great Crisis, the Dark July is over. The No One is Competent podcast is back. Bubbers, kiss your babies. Everything is fine. Jay, tell the people you're all right.
1: I am uh, quite possibly all right, I suppose.
0: And then I haven't, like, locked you in a basement holding you at gunpoint?
1: No, no basements. I won't comment on the gun, but no basements.
0: I'll take it. So, yes, we were indisposed. We were having life. Um, I went to Montana. I did the vacation. I hung out with my little cousin. I tried to be a masculine figure in his life. And not pester him about a thousand questions about whether he's going to go to college. He's 17. He's about to be 18. And like he's going to go through so much shit. And like he, he has to figure out what he wants to do with his life. And I just want to like hold him and like fix him and make it all right. But I also like want to know so I can like help him. as I have to know what he wants. But like also you got to let him to come to him. And you got to like not stress him out. So you just got to let him do his thing. You know when it's stressful. I also got a job, a new job. I, I had a job before. Well, I have two jobs. I got another job that pays money. Um, Yeah, I uh, I traded up. I've, I've joined the aristocracy of labor. Significant pay bump at this job. I went across the street, left the dick-sucking factory, went across the street to the clit-licking factory, and let me tell you, it's a good time. I get lunch breaks at this one, Jay
1: sounds fun huh?
0: yeah there's like a break room uh none of my coworkers have threatened suicide yet <laughs> it's fun well, I will remind y'all that I am a uh customer service worker I will not specify but just know that I'm out there so if you ever have a car mechanic or a waiter or a barista or pass a guy stocking shelves just know they could be me i could be anywhere you are not safe Najay, of course you were occupied uh being you know big dick star uh at oticon three panels this year this guy got um and he tells me that he uh, actually promoted the podcast this year, uh, unlike last year when he decided that he hated me <laughs> I promoted uh, so maybe someone last year too <laughs> so maybe someone from Oticon is listening to this and was like, yeah, you know, I, I met this guy, Jay, I listened to this cool panel he did, and he was so calm and reserved and knowledgeable and a real even keel and I, I, I bet that extends to the rest of the content he is enjoy- involved with
1: yeah, yeah, I bet it does but did you have a good time? I did, yeah, you know,, uh, this was the the most panels I've ever ever done at Odacon before, so I was glad that they gave me three to do. and even though like they were away that night, two of them were like ten forty five and then midnight, but you know, still got people that turn out. so went pretty well
0: so um. All of the the yada yada at the top, you can follow us on Twitter at Azalea Wyatt and at Jaharis48. You can reach the podcast itself at no one is competent at gmail.com. You can reach out for us for questions, connections, podcast requests. We actually got a request recently, and we are fitting that in the schedule. It might take a few months, but we will get to it.
1: I, I do like that it's been so long since our last episode that Twitter is no longer... Really, Twitter,
0: a hundred percent. You don't have to call it that if you don't want to. You don't have to give in to him. <laughs> you don't have to give him what he wants. Maybe. Are like, I don't know. It just takes so much work to like move to a new site. Like, Twitter has become manifestly worse in the last few months. I like argued that for the first like four months of the Mars cuck taking over that it was generally an improvement because things were just funny and random for like most of 2022 but like i don't know i get spam with a lot more bots now the ads are fucking weird there's people are obnoxious the new logo is simultaneously over designed and under designed at the same time it, it's um i don't know it's becoming a bit of a shit show
1: it's a it's it's future episode content if uh, if we're still doing this like two years from now.
0: <laughs> it's so funny because like when you, we we have uh, thought about doing an episode on failed social media platforms, and most of the failed social media platforms people know about are like right wing alternatives to Twitter, like Parler yeah. or Gab or Truth Social or whatever. And what's funny is that Twitter is just rapidly becoming. <laughs> One of them. <laughs> anyway, uh reminder to, uh, please, for the love of fucking God, review the podcast on Apple or subscribe on the YouTube. Uh, g- give us to... It, listen, we're more incentivized to make the podcast the more people know about it. So, like, boost in the... Uh, make a sacrifice to the algorithm gods and, and help us forward. Uh, would you? And remember, if we get to, like, 50 reviews on iTunes and a thousand subscribers on YouTube, I will do a podcast while completely blitzed. Uh, Jarries what are we talking about today? So today we're going to be
1: continuing with our series on the Napoleonic Wars by taking a look at the Peninsula War, um, that being France's war in Spain and Portugal. The Iberian Peninsula, some call it. Indeed. Now, the Peninsula War is going to be basically waged in the background for all of our subsequent episodes on Napoleon. You know, this Much will go like all how the, the Haitian
0: Revolution was going for a lot of the episodes we were doing previous to it.
1: Yes. So because of that, we're not going to go all the way to, to like 1814 today. Um, we're just going to be dealing with the first half, roughly speaking, which is around 1807 through 1810. And our main sources for the episode are the Napoleonic Wars, the Peninsular War, eighteen o seven to eighteen fourteen, by Gregory Fremont Barnes, and Napoleon's Cursed War: Popular Resistance in the Peninsular War, eighteen o eight to eighteen fourteen, by Ronald Fraser.
0: All right. So first, we need to zoom out a bit and kind of do some culmination of what all of our episodes are. You know, we've seen Napoleon win a bunch of wars, we've seen a bunch of things go down, but let's talk about, like, the cohesive situation. We're in the summer of 1807, and Napoleon is at the height of his power. The conclusion of the War of the Fourth Coalition left France in a position of seemingly unquestionable strength. Prussia, once regarded as having the strongest army in all of Europe, had been humiliated at the Battle of Arstet, and nearly cut in two by the Treaty of Tilsit. Russia finally fell in line, becoming France's ally. Only Britain remained at war with France. Years of victory after victory had allowed France to expand her borders into Italy and the Low Countries. In order to rule Europe, however, France relied primarily on a system of client states rather than direct annexation, so on a map it might not look like the borders expanded a lot, but they expanded a lot. The client states set up during the French Revolutionary Wars had mostly taken the form of republics. As French armies moved in Germany, Italy, and the Low Countries, they had supported local revolutionary movements in overturning their monarchies. However, once France formally transitioned from a republic to an empire, many of these so-called sister republics were reorganized into larger states, the bulk of which were monarchies. So, uh, Jay, question. It, um france does it rename itself does it call itself like we're the french empire now i know napoleon is doing his whole console thing like is yes. it really a different name yeah it is now the 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 french empire
1: um it, it it's like that they don't change that until a couple years after he takes the title of Emperor. There's a bit of a delay. I don't remember the exact year, but they do eventually say, you know, we're the French
0: Empire. So, and you know, Napoleon rhetorically argued, we've already talked about him rhetorically arguing that he is the culmination of the revolution. The revolution uh, lies in him. But we've like, we've fully abandoned democracy and, and, uh, Obviously, a lot of liberal ideas live on, in, like say the meritocracy of the armies and whatnot. But um, collective rule and checks and balances have kind of gone out the window. Is that fair to say at this point? Oh yeah, <laughs> those
1: have been uh, thrown out. Uh, yeah, there is there was still some of that going on during the um, during the consulate. But after Napoleon becomes emperor, there is only very little token resistance um, in the rest of the French government.
0: And, you know, at this point, the Jacobins have, like, been wholesale broken for years now. And, like, there's yeah. there's not, like, a resistance party. Uh, yeah, the, the Jacobins
1: that. are done for. The Like, the old school monarchists are mostly done for. um And and a lot of people from these groups are supporting Napoleon. You know, he is
0: good at bringing them over to his side. And I'm sure a lot of the like non radical monarchists and conservatives are like, they they can learn to live with Napoleon. Yeah. Essentially. Yes. And a lot of the liberals also can learn to live with Napoleon, as liberals will learn to live with most people.
1: Yeah. And, you know, he does have, while it's not a democracy, he will implement a very meritocratic um, government. And so there yeah. are still a lot of people who will be like, oh, yeah, like Napoleon is like embodies uh, the revolution because he embodies this like enlightened, meritocratic, scientific system as opposed to the old kind of like superstitious or um,
0: feudal way of government. Yeah. And there's a whole new system of like judges and laws and shit. Uh, He yeah. makes a post office, famously.
1: Yeah, got a bunch of uh, semaphores. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in France. Um, and outside of France, you have these client governments that are subordinate to him. These include the Kingdom of Holland, the Swiss Confederation, the Republic of Allais, the kingdoms of Italy and Naples, the Duchy of Warsaw, a bunch of all the german principalities that would now be brought under the umbrella of the confederation of
0: the rhine when you said the the kingdom of valley i heard the kingdom of la and i'm just thinking of like (laughs) valley girls like sitting Mm. on a throne
1: the inland empire i suppose But yeah, so Napoleon will also go a step further in establishing his dynasty by installing his own siblings at the head of several of these states. His older brother Joseph was made the king of Naples in 1806, and his younger brothers Louis and Jerome are made the kings of Holland and Westphalia, respectively. The Kingdom of Italy, encompassing the northern portion of the Italian peninsula, was claimed by Napoleon for himself.
0: So. This is where we get to Napoleon being like, uh, there are no kings. Or, or wait, no. Uh, <laughs> the problem with kings was that I was not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He is now a king. He is the king of Italy. There, there's a lot of fear, I would say, rightful fear, that Napoleon is like, you know, smashing um, the old monarchical systems and threatening to replace them with what we might not now just call dictatorship. But he, he kind of has, you know, he has to use like the old aesthetics of, you know, you, you just like, you know, your average dictator now will call himself a president. Um, you know, you still have to be called a king because yeah. that's who rules as kings. Yes.
1: Yeah. It is a, a mixing of the sort of older and newer system.
0: No, and Napoleon, like, you know, I I guess we perhaps don't have to ask the question why he installs his brothers as kings. Like, I guess that's just kind of what you do. Um, Is is he like a a paranoid guy? He didn't think other people would do it and be as loyal as as, uh, others? Or is it really just a straightforward—like, was he really close with his brothers— he, um, are his brothers like military leaders like he was? Are they like in any way qualified to do this? I mean, on some level, who is, but like, does it look good at least? Um, yeah, one of the uh, the sources which I've sort of been
1: listening along to while I've been doing all these episodes is the um, very good podcast called the Age of Napoleon podcast. Um, the person who makes that basically just chalks it up to Napoleon being a Corsican and. Corsican society, like society in a lot of places, is very rooted in family. And appointing your family members to, to your to top jobs in your organization is just a natural thing to do. I think a little bit As beyond... most places. Yeah. I think a little bit beyond that. It's definitely a loyalty thing. It's definitely like, you know, I can't really trust, you know, some random king from a different dynasty. Because they, they you know, they'll move against me. Uh, if, our, if my fortunes change, I can only trust my direct siblings. So I think that is a, a big part of it. He gets along well with his siblings for the most part. Um, the parts do generally like each other. Um, you know, I, I do think he loves all of them in his own way. Uh
0: so they're not they, messy bitches, shall we say. We've already talked about his brother-in-law being incompetent. They're not perfect, but it's it's there's not a lot of like infighting and drama.
1: Yeah. Uh there least. is I forgetting Russia and Bonaparte, who does not get made a king, kind of doesn't like some of Napoleon's politics. Um But beyond that, you know, I, his sisters don't like his wife. Um but beyond that, like they get along well. His brothers range in terms of their competency. They're not military leaders, um, but at least um, Louis and Joseph are pretty capable. Uh, They're pretty smart um, guys. They're pretty decent politicians. Jerome is a bit of an idiot, but he's not the topic of our episode. We might get to him sometime later.
0: Okay. So the end of the War of the Fourth Coalition meant that Napoleon had now faced off and defeated every major continental European power. Austria, Russia, Prussia were now nominal allies of France, even to the barrel of the gun, joining Spain and Denmark, which had both chosen to ally with France years prior. With his power unrivaled in Europe, Napoleon set his eyes to knocking the British out of the war once and for all. Left alone, the British would continue to harass French shipping, attack the colonies of France and her allies, and fund France's enemies. The destruction of the French and Spanish fleets at Trafalgar meant that an invasion of Britain was off the table. Napoleon thus settled on in a policy of economic warfare, the so-called continental system. France, her client state, and her allies, which together encompassed most of Europe, would implement a trade embargo on Britain, cutting British merchants off completely from the continent. It was hoped that the damage inflicted by this embargo would pressure Britain into coming to terms with Napoleon. But in order for the continental system to work, all major ports would have to be shut off from trade with Britain. This meant that all of Europe has to be on board. But as of late 1807, two countries remained defiant. Sweden and Portugal. Sweden was dealt with by France's allies. Russia and Denmark attacked the Swedes the following year and forced their submission. Damn. Damn. The responsibility of dealing with Portugal would be taken up by the French themselves. So, like, all of the other people in the alliance can, like, you know, you know the you know, Russians and, and whatnot, they, they can all pretend, like, oh, yeah, we're all doing this together. This is yeah. all of our idea. We're all trying to fuck over Britain. But France is, uh, squarely in charge.
1: Very much so.
0: And by the way, uh, for those of y'all who, uh, Grew up in the American school system. You probably learned about the War of eighteen twelve and the impressing of seamen, and this is part of that. Like the seas these days are very inherently political, and in, like oh, whose yeah. flag mm-hmm. you fly and who you work for, because certain boats are not supposed to go to certain ports, and who controls the seas is is like the er matter of statecraft. So th- that's. W- part of the reason why all that was going on if you were you know wondering why you had to know about the impressment of seamen when you were like in 10th grade or something yeah the
1: british start just drowning up sailors to 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 run their navy and they also respond to the continental system by raiding a lot of the shipping that is going to france and both of these things piss off america quite a bit so that is a major part of the background for the War of 1812. But yeah, so Napoleon sets his sights on Portugal pretty much immediately after the Treaty of Tilsit is signed on July 7th, 1807. He sends letters to the ruler of Portugal, that being Prince Regent John, demanding that Portugal close its ports to British trade. Back in 1801, Portugal had fought a brief war with Spain called the War of the Oranges. Spain basically just seized a little bit of territory along the border. Portugal seized a little bit of territory in South America and added it to Brazil. But it was a pretty short war. Now, since then, Portugal had remained neutral during the fight against Napoleon. That being said, Portugal had very deep ties with Britain. The two were historic allies going back to the 14th century, and Britain was Portugal's primary trading partner. Portuguese ports had frequently provided shelter and provisions to the Royal Navy during their war against France and Spain. If you remember a previous episode about the British invasions of the River Plate, the British were using Brazil as, you know, a place to to stop over and get supplies.
0: The the whole, like, location is destiny thing is, you know, falls in and out of vogue in historical circles, but like, Portugal! If you look at it on a map, you can understand its strengths and weaknesses pretty well. Yeah. (laughs) Now, Prince John was faced with
1: a tough decision. If he went along with France's demands, the British might go to war with Portugal, potentially cutting Portugal off from her vast overseas empire and even taking that empire from them. However, if he refuses the demands, Portugal would likely end up being invaded by France. Now his immediate reaction was to attempt to placate the French with minor concessions while avoiding cutting off trade with the British. This did not work.
0: Since a naval invasion would have been beyond French capabilities, Napoleon's government began negotiations with Spain in order to allow the French army to pass through Spain and invade Portugal. The Spanish agreed, and in October of 1807, a French army of around 24,000 men under the command of General jean Andoche Junot departed France, reaching the border of Portugal by November the 19th. Aware that the Portuguese army was totally outclassed by Junot's force, John did not even attempt to resist the French. Instead, the prince decided to flee along with the rest of his family and the families of his government. The Portuguese set sail on November 29th aboard Portuguese and British ships abound for Brazil. Junot's army entered Lisbon unopposed the following day, having missed the opportunity to capture the Portuguese leader. For the next 13 years, the Portuguese empire would be administered from the court's new home in Rio de Janeiro, which would actually be very important for the history of Brazil and Brazilian politics and the Brazilian monarchy and their eventual independence. But again, story for another day.
1: Yeah. Now, the fall of Lisbon meant that by the end of 1807, France was in a pretty good position. One would be forgiven for assuming that they had accomplished all of their aims. You know, the prince escaped, but Portugal was now under French control, and the continental system was, at least on paper, the norm across basically all of Europe. You know, at this point, the Ottoman Empire is the only place that's not a part of it, Um, that has a coastline. Napoleon's ambitions, however, did not end with Portugal. The victories he achieved as Emperor of France had given him the opportunity to overthrow governments, redraw borders, and even create entire countries out of his own desire. He was now intent on remaking the entire Iberian Peninsula in his own image. Now, as we've said, Spain was already France's ally and had been France's ally since 1795. They had actually been France's ally for really most of the 18th century. Napoleon, however, viewed the Spanish government with nothing but contempt, a viewpoint that he shared with many of his contemporaries.
0: Around a century had passed since Spain had last been counted as amongst the true great powers of Europe. While she still held a vast colonial empire, Spain's economy was underdeveloped and stagnant. Civil governance was characterized by a lack of cohesion, with the different regions of Spain often acting as their own countries, as they some of them would still like to do at Chex Watch now. Yeah. <laughs> State institutions were weak, leaving the Catholic Church as the strongest unifying factor in the country. Side note, sorry I keep delaying, but like, is the Catholic Church in France like... Has Napoleon smoothed things over? You know, there was a lot of, like, the taking of land. Okay, so the Catholic Church is not, like, declaring France excommunicado. No,
1: Napoleon has, uh, has patched up relations with them. Okay, well, good for him.
0: The Spanish economy was largely organized on feudal lines, with the church and titled nobility holding the bulk of the land. If you want to see how bad that can get, please listen to our episode on Louis XVI. Agricultural productivity was amongst the lowest in Europe. The country was divided up amongst various small little polities and jurisdictions with poor roads, networks, and high customs, severely limiting internal trade. All this meant that food insecurity was high, with any disruption to the food supply leading to dramatic price increases. The government was limited in its ability to respond to crises due to it paying high levels of debt. Ever since 1700, the Spanish throne had been held by a branch of the House of Bourbon, the same dynasty that ruled France prior to the revolution. The early Spanish Bourbon rulers had attempted to implement reforms to modernize Spanish state, but to little effect. In any case, the last Bourbon king with any real mind for reform, Charles III, died in 1788. His successor, Charles IV, had little talent for and interest in running a government. By 1807, Spain was effectively run by its prime minister, Manuel Godoy. A member of the lower nobility, Godoy was more competent at seducing the king's wife than he was at ruling. Damn, Jay, that's... (laughs) Good writing. His relatively lowly origins made him unpopular with the nobility, while his ineffectual policies made him unpopular with the urban workers and the middle class. Godoy was also hated by Prince Ferdinand, the king's son and heir, with factional infighting between Godoy and Ferdinand dominating court politics. So, on the other hand, uh, the Bourbons are the messy bitches on top of messy bitches.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And to make things worse, the Bourbon had also allowed the Spanish army to atrophy. The days of Spain having the strongest army in Europe had long since passed. It slowly decayed into becoming what was basically just a colonial police force. The officer corps was essentially a social club for the nobility, with one's class determining one's position in the military hierarchy. Equipment, training, discipline, and leadership were all poor. To a French observer in 1807, the then-current state of Spain would perhaps seem eerily reminiscent of the Ancien Regime in France prior to the revolution, a large country divided along archaic feudal lines, frequently racked by famine, deeply in debt, and with an ineffectual Bourbon monarch sitting at the top. Now, all this limited Spain's ability to function as an effective ally for France. For example, while Spain was ostensibly a part of the continental system, in reality, illegal trade with the British was endemic across Spain's coastline. Indeed, many corrupt port officials allowed for this smuggling to take place in exchange for a share of the profits, and the government in Madrid did little about it.
0: Again, if you're familiar with American history, this is very similar to, like, tax evasion and whatnot in uh the american colonies before the war of independence yeah like the government can say oh you're not allowed to bring in this ship and you have to pay this tax but like the guy at the port can do the guy at the port yeah Yeah, yeah all the way up to like chester a arthur
1: yeah now by 1807 long
0: historical tradition
1: indeed By 1807, Napoleon had decided that something was to be done about all of this. One option would be to deepen France's relationship with Spain, such as by a marriage between Prince Ferdinand and one of Napoleon's female relatives. Indeed, Ferdinand asked for this on multiple occasions, and then gradually assist Spain in modernizing their country. This, however, would take a long time. If the Spanish government could simply be replaced by one directly loyal to France, Napoleon would be able to turn it into a more effective ally in the fight against Britain, as well as gaining access to its colonial empire.
0: We have said that one of Napoleon's main traits is his decisiveness. Yes. So in October of 1807, Spain signed the Treaty of Fontainebleau. This was a treaty that allowed for French troops to traverse Spanish territory en route to Portugal. Treaty also gave permission for France to Asian troops in Spain in order to defend their supply lines. Yeah, this is, uh... I mean, this is basically just the French being able to walk... In wherever they want yeah. and essentially <laughs> occupy the country and yeah i'm sure they weren't particularly happy with this ostensibly the treaty did give spain various portuguese territories and established most of portugal as a client state of spain i love when you promise people things in your treaties instead of giving them to them a chunk of the country would be given to prime minister godoy himself in reality these were empty promises made to ensure spain's cooperation the Real purpose of Fountain Blue was to get the French army into Spain without having to fire a single shot. And, indeed, that worked. Now, beginning in February of 1808, Napoleon began to move additional French troops into Spain. Remember, at this point, we've already occupied Portugal. Yes. Now, officially, these were meant to reinforce Genoa's army against potential British reprisal, but in reality, they were being dispatched to occupy key positions in Spain. Pamplona, San Sebastian, Barcelona, and Figueres were all occupied by French forces. And soon an army of 118,000 men was under the command of Napoleon's brother-in-law, Marshal Joaquim Murat, on his way to Madrid. Is Joaquim... Joaquim... Yeah. That so you do that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Who cares? He's dead. While French troops in Spain were initially not viewed as hostile by the majority of the Spanish public, relations between the two groups began to devolve pretty quickly due to the army's behavior. French armies were used to living off the land. And the difficult territory of Spain, characterized alternatively by mountains, deserts, and forests, depending on the region, and poor roads, meant that transportation was difficult. The French thus immediately began doing what, you know, when you say troops are living off the land, doing. Looting food and supplies from the civilians on a mass scale.
1: Yeah. One of the funny things is, like, they justify this by saying that, like, oh, our Spanish allies aren't providing us with food and supplies when Napoleon never told the Spanish that he was moving this many troops into Spain in the first place. So even if they wanted to prepare supplies, they wouldn't have been able to. But, yeah. So by this point, most of the Spanish government kind of realizes what's going on, but there's not much they can do about it. The political situation in Madrid had devolved into chaos, with infighting between Godoy and Ferdinand's factions having been stoked by French agents throughout the previous year. On March 17th, the royal guard led a coup against Godoy and the king, forcing Charles to abdicate in favor of Prince Ferdinand, who became King Ferdinand VII. Godoy just barely escaped being lynched by the mob. Now, Marshal Murat enters Madrid in late March of 1808. A few days later, Napoleon invites both Ferdinand and Charles to a conference in Bayonne, which is a French town just near the Spanish border, uh, for the sake of arbitrating their dispute. Both men accepted, basically because they knew that they couldn't really resist. Now, at this point, most people were expecting that Napoleon was going to side with one of them, most likely Ferdinand. Instead, on May 7th, Napoleon forced the two Spanish kings to renounce their claims to the throne in favor of Napoleon's own brother, Joseph Bonaparte. Joseph would eventually arrive in Madrid in July with his close associate marshal Jordan joining him as military advisor I mentioned Jordan basically because Joseph will actually like go into the field in battle and like go on campaigns but um he doesn't have much military experience so it's mostly when he's like doing military stuff it's mostly um a Jordan who is kind of making the decisions
0: yeah, Jordan's backseat gaming. Yeah,
1: and he's an uh, accomplished general from the Revolutionary Wars. Uh, if you remember the Which, battle. to be clear, of, is good. Yeah, if you remember the battle for Reuss, um from the Second Coalition, that was uh, Jordan.
0: The babysitter. Yeah. <laughs> You'll love to see it. Uh,
1: another funny thing Joseph Bonaparte, if you remember earlier, we mentioned, was the King of Naples. So he resigns as King of Naples to become king of Spain, and Marshal Murat, um, Napoleon's brother-in-law, becomes the new king of Naples.
0: It's like hand-me-down clothing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: The first major Spanish resistance to French action would come on the 2nd of May, 1808, just a few days before the abdication of Bayonne. Upon hearing that the French were planning on moving King Ferdinand's siblings to Bayonne, a mob gathered near the royal palace to prevent their removal. French soldiers opened fire, dispersing the mob, but sparking a series of spontaneous uprisings throughout the capital. Spanish mobs swarmed French troops in the Dos de Mayo uprising, as would come to be known, killing 130 of them before the uprising was quelled by the French army.
0: I assume far more Spaniards died. Yes. But that is very significant. Like, those are numbers. So, Marshal Murat responded by calling a ceasefire, uh, having the citizens elect representatives, uh, coming to a meeting, apologizing to them, starting a diet. No, no, no. He, uh, so he's uh, forming a military commission to punish everyone involved. Uh, to quote Marat, "...the population of Madrid, led astray, has given itself to revolt and murder. French blood has flowed. It demands vengeance." All those arrested in the uprisings, arms in hand, will be shot. Over 300 civilians were executed by the commission, adding to the roughly 200 civilians who had been killed during the uprising. The events of the uprising execution following it would form the basis of two of Francisco Goya's famous paintings, held appropriately the 2nd and 3rd of May. Yeah, the, the 3rd of May is one of those paintings where, like,
1: even if you don't recognize it by name, you've probably seen it.
0: I almost certainly have it up on the the YouTube right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. While the Dos de Mayo would be remembered as the first major uprising against the French authority, it would be far from the only uprising during the summer of 1808. Resistance to French occupation and the crowning of Joseph as the king of Spain swept the countryside, with several provinces and cities declaring for King Ferdinand instead. The army was divided, with parts of it supporting Joseph, but the bulk going over to the side of the rebels. Ad hoc military governments formed throughout Spain, establishing juntas in Ovidio, Saragossa, Galicia, and Catalonia. Many of these uprisings were met with harsh reprisals, as French units seized and burnt towns and extracted a brutal retribution on the civilian population. Major cities such as Girona, Valencia, and Zaragoza were put under siege by the French army. Uh, we'll remind you, one, uh, Spain is already a very like regional, independent place, so there's probably a lot of infrastructure for regional governments and cities to start throwing together leaders and organizing people. And two, you want to remember uh, what all happened in the purges outside of Paris during the French Revolution. Um, This is starting to remind me of that, though we have yet to reach mass drownings. Yes. Fingers crossed.
1: (laughs) Initially, it seemed as if French forces present in Spain would be enough to put down the rebellion. But by July, things began to turn against them. The French army in Spain was big, but had been spread out in an attempt to occupy as much of the country as possible.
0: If any American needs a frame of reference, Spain is like between the size of it's like bigger than Arizona, but it's smaller than Texas. Like it's a pretty large strip of land.
1: Yeah. Now, this means that individual garrisons were liable to being cut off and defeated. In June, a French force of around 20,000 men under General Dupont was sent to support a French naval squadron that had been trapped by Spanish ships and coastal guns in Cadiz. They instead captured and sacked the city of Cordoba, but were in turn surrounded by Spanish forces under General Castaños near the town of Bailen. Low on supplies and suffering in the heat of the Spanish summer, Dupont's army surrendered after a brief skirmish on July 19th. The loss of Dupont's army was the largest French defeat in Europe since Napoleon's crowning as emperor. Facing a collapse of their forces in Spain, Joseph made the decision to abandon Madrid and retreat north to consolidate along the banks of the Ebro River.
0: And where is that in Spain, just to give us an idea?
1: So that's in the northeastern corner along the French border. So basically, they're going towards the French border for obvious reasons and kind of establishing a defensive perimeter.
0: So so they, like, went in hard in February. And by July, they have been pushed back to basically 10% of the country near their border. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs>
1: So by the end of the summer, the Spanish had inflicted 40,000 casualties on the French and forced them into retreat. News of French defeat spread throughout Europe, giving hope to many of those who still sought to oppose the French emperor. The British ceased all existing hostilities with Spain and began negotiating with the various military juntas that had cropped up. A despondent Joseph wrote to his brother, stating that, quote, It would take 200,000 Frenchmen to conquer Spain and 10,000 scaffolds to maintain the prince who should be condemned to reign over them. No, sire, you do not know these people. Each house will be a fortress and every man of the same mind as the majority. Not a Spaniard will be on my side if we are conquerors.
0: President Putin, you have to understand that uh, this is going to be difficult. and uh... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To make matters worse for the French, in August of 1808, a force of around 15,000 British soldiers under the command of General Arthur Wellesley, the future Duke of Wellington, arrived in Portugal. The 39-year-old Irish-born Wellington had made a name for himself fighting in the East India Company in India. In early 1808, he had been selected to lead an excision to the Rio de la Plata in South America, a region that the British had briefly captured in 1806 before being expelled by the local Spanish colonists in a brilliant little episode you can listen to at your own accord. Forces were being assembled for this expedition to, you know, do it right this time when news reached England about the outbreak of the war in Spain. With Britain's War with Spain now effectively over, Wellington and his men were now sent instead to free Portugal from Spanish rule. Anti French uprisings had already spread into Portugal from Spain, and shortly after arising on the peninsula, Wellington was able to defeat General Junot in a series of battles and force him to abandon Lisbon. That's the capital of Portugal. Junot would eventually sign an agreement with Wellington's superior, General. Alright, what the fuck is that name? Dalrymple. Dalrymple. Nah, nah, nah. You fucking with me. You fuck. <laughs> no, no, no. What's his real name, Jay? It, it, it's, it's, I think it's like Sir Hugh Dalrymple. <laughs> Sir Hugh Dalrymple. God bless the British. So, so he signs this agreement with, uh, you know, uh, Dick Remple, and the British are going to now evacuate French forces in Portugal by sea and sail them to France, allowing them to keep their arms and plunder. The generous terms offered by Dick Remple caused a scandal in England and led to a court-martial. Yeah, fuck him. Dick Remple would be relieved of command, and Wellington, who had little to do with the agreement, would for the time be sent elsewhere as command of British forces in the peninsula was transferred to General John Moore, but uh, don't worry about Wellington, he'll be fine. Yeah. Faced with the near collapse of French forces in the peninsula, Napoleon resolved to deal with the situation himself. On November the 7th, Napoleon led an army of 130,000 men across the Pyrenees and into Spain. He's like, Joseph, you're a bitch, I could do it with 130,000. His force easily brushed aside all Spanish military resistance with Marshal Lanz, avenging the defeat at Balin by crushing General Castanos at Tudela on the 23rd. By December 4th, Napoleon had reached Madrid, the the city falling to his forces without a fight.
1: Napoleon's rapid march into Spain caught the British completely off guard. In October, General Moore had begun an advance into northern Spain towards the Ebro River with around 20,000 men supported by a further 10,000 that had landed in the port town of Corunna, Napoleon's advance meant that Moore's force was now in danger of being surrounded and defeated in its entirety. Napoleon took quick action, seizing the chance to finally land a decisive blow against the British. You have to remember, the British don't have a big army.
0: And they're not always great.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they also don't have a good reputation um, from the whole American Revolution multiple coalition wars, and the recent failure to capture the, the river plate. But, uh, yeah, Napoleon is thinking, like, if he can defeat, you know, like 30,000 men or so, that n- represents a large chunk of the trained, experienced British army. So Moore has no choice but to begin the retreat to Corunia. The resulting long retreat saw both sides struggle across harsh terrain during the midst of winter with the British just barely managing to remain ahead of the French. As a note, the uh, you might wonder like, oh, how harsh is the Spanish winter? Generally not too bad, but these years in the early 1800s happen to feature like some of the harshest winters in Spain, just by chance. So the British reached Coronia by the 11th of January, 1809, closely pursued by their French enemies. Moore turns his army around to fight a brief battle against the French on the 16th, and he ends up being mortally wounded by a French cannonball. But the British are able to d- um, slow down the French and slip away largely intact, being evacuated from Coronia by the Royal Navy.
0: I love a, uh, your leg is blown off by a cannonball death. That's, that, that, that's fun at least.
1: Yeah. So Napoleon had lost his chance to land a crushing blow against the British, but had succeeded in pushing them out of the peninsula. You know, the Dunkirk parallels are like almost annoyingly obvious with the, uh, the Battle of Quirinia. But if you want to understand this war, you can, you can imagine that this is a little bit kind of like Dunkirk. So while the French army was pursuing the British across Spain during the winter of 1808 and early 09, rumors began to circulate across Europe hinting towards a new war. Austria was mobilizing, raising the largest army in its history. Napoleon departed Spain in early January, before the Battle of Corunna, actually, in order to return to France. And he would eventually spend much of the year occupied by the new war with Austria, the War of the Fifth Coalition. Which we will go through in
0: a future episode. You've seen the movie Incredibles. Yes. You know, like the beginning when they're like interviewing the supers and Mr. Incredible is talking about how crime always happens and is like, I just cleaned up this mess. Can you keep it clean for 10 minutes? I feel like. This is this is Napoleon. Uh, also, with the uh, you know, how many less times do you need to learn this lesson, old man? Yeah. Against <laughs> Austria, yeah, it's like God damn it! I just which, whip these bitches asses like I do it again. By the time of Napoleon's departure, French forces in Spain, which remember is over a hundred thousand men, controlled around half the peninsula. Northern and central Spain were under French control. This included the bulk of Catalonia, Aragon, Castile, Leon, Asturias, and of course Madrid. Anti-French forces controlled ever have the peninsula. A sort of crescent running along the east and south of the peninsula and accompanying Galicia, Portugal, Andalusia, Mauritia, and Valencia. Is there like any cooperation going on between the Portuguese and the Spanish at this point? you know at, say fuck these guys at this point
1: fairly limited not really the portuguese will soon basically um tie themselves very closely with the british wellington will be be named as commander in chief of portuguese forces as well so the portuguese will operate in close concert with the british and then the british in turn are working
0: with the spanish So Marshal Solt, who had taken up the chase towards Corona after Napoleon's departure, now turned his attention to Portugal, invading the country and capturing Porto, its second largest city. The British returned to Lisbon in April, however, with Wellington, who had now been named Commander-in-Chief of the Portuguese forces by Prince John, in command of a joint Anglo-Portuguese force of over 20,000 men. Wellington subsequently defeated Salt and forced the French out of Portugal once more. I am beginning to see how this man got a reputation. One of the key issues facing the Spanish rebels was a lack of clear leadership. Technically speaking, most of them had declared for King Ferdinand, but Ferdinand was being kept under house arrest in France ever since the abdications of Bayonne. In his absence, the various generals and provincial leaders of Spain finally united to form the Supreme Central Junta. I, yo. The Supreme Central Junta. It's a good name. Hells yeah. With its headquarters in the southern city of Seville. And I would imagine that highly divisive and regional Spanish politics and pre-existing grudges is not making it easier for these people to get along. Yeah. Again, there are parts of Spain where secession is popular today, if you are wondering how (laughs) regional the country is. With French attention diverted away from the peninsula, the Junta and British hoped to capitalize on the situation in the summer of 1809. A combined British and Spanish army marched along the Tagus Valley towards Madrid, meeting King Joseph's forces at the Battle of Talavera, on the 27th of July, Talavera was a tactical victory for the British, who briefly forced Joseph into retreat. And remember, by Joseph, we mean, who was the guy, Jay? Uh, Jordan. Jordan. Wellington soon received news that Salt was marching with an additional French army from the north and thus forced to retreat back towards Portugal.
1: Upset at the British retreat, the Spanish Junta would launch another attempt at retaking Madrid later on in 1809. This would prove to be a very bad mistake. At the Battle of Ocaña on November 19th, Marshal Solt's forces encircled and defeated the Spanish army, inflicting 5,000 casualties and taking another 20,000 prisoners. A few weeks later, the French completed their siege of Girona, capturing the city and thus securing the region of Catalonia for themselves. The French thus ended 1809 in Spain on a relatively high note. The conquest of the peninsula was still far away, but in Napoleon's absence, Joseph and the Marshals had managed to stabilize the situation and even advance against the Spanish. The following year seemed ripe for a major French campaign.
0: So just to like summarize a little bit, this is not a traditional like occupiers versus occupied uh war of attrition we're used to thinking about. This is a little more formal. Like the Spanish junta and the British they have a control of a lot of territory. They're they're not acting like we're gonna fucking bleed into the countryside yeah. and and death by a thousand cuts they're trying to like get together and do the thing and the problem is the french are really good at doing the thing and even yes. though the french have overextended even though they have limited numbers and have taken some l's uh th- when they try to like capitalize that they kind of rush and the french are like no we're still the french and uh, yeah. <laughs> with all of our reforms and whatnot and beat their asses up Off. yes okay so now we're going to 18010 Wait, okay, one more question. Wellington is, like, not confident to move out of Portugal because of uh, recent defeats.
1: Yeah. That, um, and, and in general, Wellington doesn't trust the Spanish all that much it's for the same reasons that, you know, Napoleon viewed them with contempt. He views pretty correctly that the Spanish army is not very good. Spanish generals are using outdated tactics, their level of equipment and training is very poor. And therefore Wellington is pretty reluctant to conduct operations with them unless they have like overwhelming numerical superiority. And on the flip side, the Spanish often view Wellington as arrogant and presumptuous. You have to remember Spain had spent a large portion of the 1700s at war with Britain. these are two countries which did not have a good recent history at this point in time, so they're also
0: probably both right. Yeah,
1: so, so there is a lot of um, discord between the two groups, and we'll also see. Even though that Catholic Church had, you know, in Rome had made kind of peace with Napoleon, the Church in Spain starts fomenting a lot of anti-French sentiment. The you know, priests start pushing out pamphlets saying that Napoleon is anti-Christ, that the French are all you know evil, atheistic, you know, um, villains and everything. And when they whip up this fervor, this sort of also spills over and the British end up also kind of being viewed a little bit with some suspicion because they're Protestants. So you have a little bit of that rivalry going on as well. So the defeat at Ocana in 1809 had deprived Spain of its major army defending the south. The French were quick to take advantage of this, advancing into Andalusia in January of 1810. Cordoba and Sevilla fell quickly to the French, with the supreme junta escaping to the port city of Cadiz. In Cadiz, the junta would soon fall and be replaced by a new, more representative government, the Cortes of Cadiz, a legislative body made up of representatives from across Spain and her overseas empire. The, this is a bit like the, the Portuguese flight to Brazil, where it's like a little thing that happens that is actually really important (laughs) in history. This will have importance to the history of the Spanish empire because no, they are inviting representatives from the Americas and the Philippines to partake in the government. Now, a lot of these representatives are actually kind of upset because they feel like they're, they don't have enough representation. You know, you're talking about like one representative for a large chunk of the Americas, for example. But sort of the spread of kind of liberal values and the idea of representative government will have a major impact, particularly in the Americas, where a lot of the colonial governments will set up their own juntas or their own um, cortes ...to kind of figure out what they're going to do for themselves.
0: Meanwhile, a separate French force of around 60,000 men... ...under the newly arrived Marshal Messina... ...advanced into Portugal with the intent on reconquering it for France. His forces outnumbered, Wellington was forced to retreat to Lisbon. On nose to the French, however, Wellington and the Portuguese... were preparing for this contingency by building a formidable line of fortifications... ...north of Lisbon, known as the Lines of Torres Vedras... So this goes a little bit into the
1: geography of Lisbon. Um, we actually talked a little bit about this way back in our episode on the uh, on the English Armada, but Lisbon is uh, a port city. I think I remember describing it back in that episode as like one of the best natural port cities in the world. It's also a very good city from a defensive perspective. Lisbon is pretty much ideal for a capital city. Um, the reason being that is that the bulk of the city lies on a peninsula that is jutting down into basically a bay formed by the the mouth of the River Tagus. Because it's on the peninsula, that means you can only attack from the north by land. And that means that the British and Portuguese fortify the heck out of the, the entrance to the peninsula, basically building these long lines of very impressive, you know, earthworks and trenches and um pillboxes and fortifications and everything. So it is a very uh not it is a place where you don't want to attack. Let's just put it that way.
0: I take your word for it. So Messina's attempts to assault the lines would prove fruitless, and the French army began to dwindle due to a lag of supplies brought about by the Scorched Earth policy implemented by the British and Portuguese. Messina could do little but camp outside of Lisbon, his army suffering away under the strain of disease and desertion. While the French would not retreat until the following year, it was clear that capturing Lisbon would be almost impossible without first securing the rest of the Iberian Peninsula. Of the Third French invasion of Portugal effectively brought to a halt, the official campaigning of 1810 came largely to a close. However, across the Iberian countryside, French forces were increasingly becoming embroiled in a new kind of warfare. Small bands of rebels formed to harass their convoys, ambush patrols, and steal their supplies. The small-scale warfare practiced by these partisans gave rise to a nickname that would become famous throughout history. Taking the diminutive form of guerrera, the Spanish word for war, they became known as the guerrillas. And we will pick up the rest of the story sometime in the near future with the back half of the Peninsular War. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fascinating little even though we're not at the end, it's a fascinating little story because basically it's like, yeah, trying to check the French on land with a classical army is a bad idea.
1: Yeah, very difficult to do. Um it, it, we will be talking a lot about you know guerrilla warfare, uh a lot about the internal politics, which we didn't really go too much into in this episode, as well as you know the eventual conclusion of the war when we do part two which, as you mentioned, will not be immediately next. Uh, We will do the War of the Fifth Coalition first, but uh, we will get back to the Peninsula War in due time.
0: It's fascinating to me how, like, the, the mission creep. Like, Napoleon's first objective is invade and take over portugal but then on the way he ends up creating this whole other problem much bigger problem with spain
1: yeah i i think it's really like at this point you have napoleon at the height of his arrogance where he really feels i think that like he just has to say a thing and sign a paper and he can make a new country because he's done it you know the kingdom of westphalia was not a thing until he made it the duchy of warsaw he made the, you know, the, the Kingdom of Italy, I mean, it's the old name, but he basically made the modern Kingdom of Italy. Um, it, you know, he could just sign a paper and make a new country. I think that kind of gives him the arrogance to think that he just has to, you know, sign some orders, send some men around, and he can overthrow the Spanish government, make a new king, and everything will be fine. I think there's also an element where... The French had not encountered resistance on this level, and we'll go more into this next time when we talk about the guerrillas, um, but they hadn't encountered resistance on this level elsewhere in Europe. Really you have to go to Haiti to, to kind of have a very good parallel, or you have to think about like the early, like, you know, like the war in the Vendée early on in the revolution. Um, and. I think that's in part because the French army, the way it worked is like, it moved quickly. It would invade another country, beat the Austrians or the Prussians or the Russians in the conventional battle, move through the countryside. Sure, they would strip it dry and you know steal a lot of the stuff from peasants, but then they would move along and the people there wouldn't really have enough time to really organize and decide that we're gonna fight the French. Here in Spain, where they're getting mired down in the conflict, where they're, you know, here in this limited area of land, you know, month after month, year after year, that's when they really start taking their toll on the local population, um, which, again, we'll go more into when you talk about the guerrillas. But I think that especially whips up a lot of fervor against the French. Yeah, it, it's hard to prove why things don't happen in history. So it's hard to say, like, why in Spain is there more resistance? than there is anywhere else in europe traditionally a lot of the people have just chalked this up to the the power of the catholic church that you know the peasantry and all they think that the french are demons they think that napoleon is antichrist but i think it also has to do a lot with just how you know the french army behaved in spain as i mentioned
0: it seems like so obvious and it's amazing that wasn't like taken as a concern
1: I mean, yeah, I, I did, you know, like I said, I think it's just really that, you know, the French had not experienced this level of pushback and Napoleon was, I think, almost viewing himself as invincible at this point.
0: All right, I think that'll wrap it up for today's episode. So remember, do all the things, uh, diddle all them algorithms. I I don't care to do the rest of the plugs. Besides the fact to remind you that our music is done by the brilliant Sam Bryce, whose tunes are probably Coming in as we speak. I have been Azalea. He has been Jay. Folks, we're glad that you can't you stop by. We'll to this episode. We will hopefully be back in two weeks, barring any catastrophe and/or dumbassery. Y'all be good.